Welcome, my name is David Yoakum. I'm the director of the lab at DC. It is my pleasure to have with us today Professor Timothy Wilson, a social psychologist and a professor, the Cheryl J. Aston Professor of Psychology at the University of Virginia. A prolific author on all matters of social psychology, over a hundred different articles that you've written, a very prominent textbook on social psychology, two books, which I'll go ahead and plug as recommended reading. Right, hold them up. First, yes, I hold them up. First, Strangers Unto Ourselves, which we'll talk a little bit about today, some of the content that's in here. And then more recently, Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By, which I think we'll also we'll also touch on. And I'll just say that. As a psychologist, your, your work has been influential to me personally, and I think I can speak on behalf of a lot of others in saying that it's been uh, influential to them as well. And we've seen this reflected in a couple of awards that you've gotten that were impressive to my mind. The Thomas Jefferson Award, which is the University of Virginia's highest award that they give. And then in 2015, the William James Fellow Award from the Association for Psychological Science for, sorry if I'm embarrassing you, a lifetime of significant intellectual contribution. So it's a real pleasure to have you here. Uh, Professor Wilson, thank you. Well, thank you, David. It's been great to be here. I thought what would be a useful way to kind of structure the conversation is around this big meta idea of how do we change behavior, which of course in the public policy setting where you're constantly making assumptions about how people currently behave and then trying to design policies and programs to change behavior, this is at the heart of so many things that we do in government. And to start us off, I'd like to talk a little bit about what we know about the causes of behavior. And I think a lot of the work that you and others have done that's summarized in Strangers to Ourselves that brings up this concept of the unconscious and the role that it can have in our behavior is something that is maybe not always appreciated to the extent that it's there. So why don't you kick us off by telling us a little bit about first, what do we even mean by the unconscious? And then what do we know about how it influences our behavior? Well, boy, big questions. Let's start off uh, light. Uh, yeah, I think when you hear the term unconscious, many people think of um, Sigmund Freud, and we have this deep, um, hidden part of ourselves which is full of these um, uh, drives, sexual drives, aggressive drives. And that may well be part of it, but I, I think what we know from modern psychology is it's much broader than that, that the mind is this powerful organ which operates largely beneath the surface. Um, consciousness is really, really is just the tip of the iceberg of, of um, what's going on in our minds. And when we try to explain our behavior, we're probably just capturing a little piece of it as to what the real reasons are. I'll give one example. It, it, you know, whenever there's an election, uh, pollsters stop people as they leave the polls and they say, would you mind telling me who you voted for and could you explain why you voted for that person? And um, we're pretty good at saying who we voted for, but maybe not so good as to why. I mean, that, we, we can tell a story. Oh, this person, uh, it was because of issues A, B, and C. But uh, as political scientists know, voting is a complex thing based on party identification and, and emotional connections with candidates, um, what their faces look like, um, all sorts of things that probably are beneath the surface and not being captured in what uh, we think when, we, when we're asked that question. And why do you think that that gap exists? Because I think if, you, if people just sort of reflect on their, their everyday experience, there's a tendency to think, well, I know 
I know why I do the things that I do. In fact, I, I remember reading somebody calling psychology like the Rodney Dangerfield of the sciences because it doesn't get any, it doesn't get the proper respect because everyone just thinks they're their own psychologist that knows why they do things. Why do I need some professor at UVA to help me look into this matter? Where, where does the breakdown happen? Well, you know, when we introspect, we don't know what we don't know. That's that's the problem. That that's. Um, it seems compelling to me when I, if you ask me why I voted for someone or, or why I did whatever, I, I can tell a story, but, but it is hard to know what we don't know. And, and that, that's the mystery, I think, is, is um, I mean, it's kind of like, um, you know, shining a flashlight in a, in a dark cave. You can see what the flashlight is pointed on at any given moment, but you can't see everything else around you. And you may not even know how big that cave is. And, and that's the, the mind, that there's so much there that we, we, we can't view at any given time. Right. And I guess, for me, thinking about other senses are kind of illustrative analogies here, where with vision, I sort of see all the colors and shapes and I have that experience. But if you were to ask me, how how those computations actually occur to give this experience of vision it's of course completely it's completely opaque i have no experience of the, you know the photons hitting the retina and all of the different processes are there and it sounds like it's a similar sort of thing for a lot of our decisions that we make yeah and and i i think that's actually a good analogy in that that i think most of us are would agree that we aren't privy to the workings of the sort of lower parts of our minds how perception works how our memory works or if you were to ask me, you know, explain how your kidney is working right now, I don't know. Uh, but it becomes a little more controversial with the things that are um, sort of higher order things of our feelings and preferences and, and motives. These are things that we think we have more access to than, but they may be like our kidneys to a large extent. Right. And how much of this do you think is related to whenever we're trying to sort of predict our own behavior or trying to predict another space you've done work on, on, on sort of what you call it, affective forecasting, like the things that are going to make us happier or sadder. Say a little bit about how good we are at these types of predictions. Sure. Well, there, it's even more difficult to know how I'm going to feel in the future in some ways because I have to know not only how my mind works now, but to try to project forward and say, uh, how will I feel um, a week, a year, 10 years from now if, if various things unfold? And uh, you know, I don't mean to say we're terrible at this. I mean, we're, we're pretty good at knowing the sorts of things that will make us feel very happy and the kind of things that will make us feel very sad. But there's certainly some slippage there. That, and, and I think that the biggest lesson I've learned from this research is we underestimate our resilience, that um, we tend to think if something awful happens to us that it will be devastating and, and impact us for a very long time. And a lot of research shows, you know, it, it, it will be awful for a short time, but we're pretty resilient people and, and we recover from, from uh, the loss of loved ones or the breakup of a relationship, say. Uh, but it's also true of the good side that um, uh, if we win the lottery, you know, we'll be a pretty amazed for a short time, um, but eventually we'll, that'll become the norm of our, our new lives and it won't have the same bang as, as it did originally. And, and that's the part I think we often get wrong is, is how much we recover, how quickly we recover from both positive and negative events. Right. And that lottery one isn't just an example off the cuff. This is one where there's been studies looking at lottery winners, also yes. paraplegics. 
Yes, and you know, the lottery wingers, I mean, my advice to people is, you know, buy a lottery ticket because it buys you a little moment of temporary hope and, and fun, but hope you don't win because, you know, if you do, not only will you not be as happy as you think you will, often people are quite miserable. They, they, um, they lose their friends, um, people think they didn't deserve the money, and you get hit on by all sorts of strangers. People don't know how to uh, handle the money, they often lose it, and, and so it's, it's a pretty miserable outcome, actually. Right. Well, so, if there are a lot of aspects that drive our behavior that are, that are unconscious, there are also aspects that are, that are conscious, I mean, we certainly have the, well, actually, I'll pause and ask this as a question. We certainly have a stream of consciousness running through our mind, and I can certainly articulate reasons for why I think I'm doing the things that I'm doing. Is there, is there any role of the conscious stream of thought that we have that's driving our behavior? And if so, in what ways, in contrast to what's happening unconsciously? Well, that, you know, that's a fascinating question. I think we're still unraveling, but, but I, I, I do think that obviously the conscious mind is important. What exactly the role of consciousness is, is a, a very hot research topic. But the way I like to think about it is that we, we develop th theories and stories about ourselves just like we do about other people. We, we take what evidence is available to us so I can watch and see what I do, and then I do have access to my own feelings and, and a lot of data that bubbles up from within. And from all this information, I weave it into a story of who I think I am and why I do what I do, and, and it may not be entirely correct. Um, you know, one example of that is, is people who uh, are convinced they're shy, and maybe they were shy as kids, and that's, that's the kind of their story about themselves. But if you ask their friends, they say, Shy? You're always the life of the party. What are you talking about? And, and, and you know, that's an example where my theory about myself may not be all that accurate, but it's very important. It dictates what I do and whether I choose to go to parties or not. And, right. and so those stories are, are critical. And so are there, some th are there some things we're better or more accurate and introspecting about than other things? Well, yes, I think knowing our feelings is, is, is we're a pretty good readout of what our emotions are. Not perfect. There are certainly times when um, there can be some slippage even there. But if, but if you ask people, you know, are you happy? Are, are you sad? Um, are you afraid? You know, I, I think there's a pretty good readout of those. Um, but the more um, you're getting into questions that require some inference, like the why questions, you know, why did you vote for this person? Why do you feel the way you do? Those, I think, we're much less good at of, of sort of constructing a, an explanation. Right. Well, I want to, so I think from these insights, there is, it sort of tees up an important part about the, the methodologies that you use in, in your research and others that you summarize in the book to where, you know, as a, as, a, as a policymaker, there might be an impulse to sort of say at your desk, oh, well, I can, I can kind of introspect on why I think people behave the way they do. I can make predictions about how they'll think that they're going to behave in response to some policy. Maybe I go a little bit further and, and I'll assemble some, some focus groups and just kind of ask people, you know, if I did this, what would you do? If I did this other thing, what would you do? And I think our conversation to date, it's not necessarily that that information is irrelevant, but there's there's limits to it as soon as you start to enter the space where people won't have the ability to know, to introspect and know exactly why they're acting the way they are, or you do have these prediction gaps down the road. How, so what, what, do you, what are the preferred methods that we should be using to learn about policies and programs and their effectiveness? 
Well, you know, good questions, and you're certainly right. That in other sciences like um, physics or chemistry, we would never presume that we know the answer in advance as to as to what a certain chemical reaction should be. But for human behavior, you know, we all have theories and, and what our grandmothers told us, and, and they're often very compelling, which, which might lead us to think um, we can go ahead and try to change behavior without testing it. But there have been some hard-learned lessons that um, you, your intuition is, can sometimes be very wrong in very damaging ways. So uh, one of my favorite examples of this are the scared straight programs that were put into prisons um, a few decades ago where at-risk kids were taken to uh, visit uh, lifers in prisons and the lifers would try to talk them out of a life of crime and tell them, don't end up like me, this would be terrible. Now, if you asked me, would, would that help these kids go on a straighter path? I probably would have said, yeah, that makes sense, you know, to scare these kids, show them what prisons are like, and that's surely going to help them um, in their everyday decisions about what, what to do. Well, it turns out that after those programs were put into many prisons, psychologists got around to testing them with, this is a roundabout way of getting to your question of what the, what the preferred method is, which is a good experiment where you um, actually give one group the treatment you're interested in, in this case, scared straight, but you have a control group of kids who don't do it, and you randomly assign so that you can be pretty sure the kids don't differ in, in any other way. And uh, then you compare, see what happens. Did the group that got the treatment have the intended effects compared to the control group? And in the scared straight example, um, believe it or not, those studies, once done, showed that those who went through the program were more likely to commit crimes. Uh, why, we don't exactly know. I have my, some intuitions, but the point is that, that only by doing the experiment, we can't just trust our intuitions. It's a good place to start and to design programs, but you've got to test them with good control groups. Just like we develop drugs in medicine, we would never dream of saying, I think this drug's going to cure diabetes, so I'm going to give it to people. You've got to go through a long series of trials to show that it does um, with good experiments, and the same should be true of behavioral interventions. Right. It's a powerful example, and you give some other ones in the book, too, and I think part of the power is that it's not only in those cases that he thought something was going to work and it didn't, but there's also the possibility of it backfiring, yeah. which is something that's sometimes lost in the policy yeah. discussions that concern from that. Well, in thinking back then for the sort of conscious stories that we're telling ourselves, this is the topic of, of your, your second book. Whenever you're thinking about your subtitle, the stories we live by, what do you mean by that? What are these stories you're referring to? Well, um, when it comes to understanding why someone's going to behave, you have to see the world through their eyes and, and really understand um, how they view it. And, and um, you know, for example, is a student going to succeed in school? Well, obviously their native ability is, is important. Obviously the quality of the school they go to is important. But what often gets lost there is how the child or the student views him or herself is also critical. What sort of theories or stories do they have about their likelihood of success, um, how smart they are, whether they're a math person or not? Well, these kinds of stories have a lot of um, important impacts on their motivation, their, like, how they'll bounce back from failures. And so a lot of interventions have been developed um, to target those stories. 
uh, such as Carol Dweck's work on mindsets, that, that it's very important to convey to kids that intelligence is not this fixed thing that we have or not, but that rather it's something that can grow, and, and uh, like a muscle in the brain, as, as she says. Um, that's a beautiful example of where, where the story, and in intervening at, at the level of the story, can, um, with these well-controlled experiments, have been shown to help kids succeed. And say, say a little bit more about what the intervention is, because it's, 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 unpack it kind of concretely, because I think it can be missed just how simple some of these interventions are. Sure. So in that particular case, uh, Dweck and her colleagues have developed um, it's, uh, an online uh, training program that, that middle school students do. Uh, they are given examples of how the brain can, can develop and change over time by neurons connecting. They're given examples from other people who say how important it was to um, realize that if they had a setback, it didn't mean they couldn't do something. They needed to find a better way to do it. Um, this takes you know, maybe 45 minutes. And um, some kids are randomly assigned to do that module, others to a control module where they're, they don't get that information. And then you look and see how the kids do in, in school um, over the next several months. And uh, that simple message that, hey, um, intelligence is something that can grow, can lead to improvements in uh, their academic performance. And there are lots of examples like this. I've done some work with college students that is similar, where brief interventions uh, among those who are not succeeding, conveying that, you know, this doesn't mean you're a failure. This means that maybe it's something a lot of people struggle at first, and you've got to uh, find better studies uh, strategies. Is this the one about the academic probation letters? Uh, that's a, no. This is actually my original study um, where a little thirty-minute session saying, "Hey, a lot of people do uh, poorly at first. Um, they did better academically." But there's a more recent one where. Um, some researchers, this isn't one of my studies, but some researchers looked at the letters that their university was sending to students telling them they're on academic probation, probation and found that these letters were sort of punitive sounding and, and um, shaming to these students. And the students who got them, not that many would actually succeed in getting back in academic good standing. So they convinced their university to let them, uh, the next time round of letters, to randomly assign some people to get that standard one, or one the researchers rewrote to communicate a different message that, hey, we're rooting for you, this, this doesn't mean that, that you can't do it, um, it means that uh, we understand that many people have problems. Um, so implicit in this was, this isn't you alone, a lot of people struggle. Um, uh, they sort of took out shaming aspects of it, um, tried to show the institutions behind you, and that the kids who got that revised letter were much more likely to get back on the academic standing. Um, now, if you think about it, you know, by random assignment, these two groups who got the standard letter versus the revised letter, there's no difference in how intelligent they are, what their family issues were what their financial resources were, all those things are equalized. The, the only way they differed is this little difference in the message this letter conveyed, the story it conveyed, and that had a powerful effect on, on their behavior. Mm -hmm. Right. It's kind of remarkable that it, in that example, it works as well as it does for entering college students. I mean, it's kind of different thinking about very young kids who are still 
developing their sense of identity or their story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You would think by the time you're 18 or 19, you, you have stories that were maybe more rigid. These, these results suggest that actually maybe our stories are very much more fragile than we might think or well, that's, or you know, how, that, how would you think about it? That's a really good question and, and I, I think it's one people are working on is at what point are these interventions most powerful? And note that in both those, you're undergoing a life transition now, that, that a lot of these are in middle school when people are going from, you know, entering um, a big change in their lives and their social lives, and they haven't yet formed a, a, a firm identity of, of what this new person is going to be like in middle school. But same going to college, you know, it's a big transition to, to go away, and, and um, now you're in this new environment, and... and um, you're not quite sure what your identity here is, and it may be that um, you're open to change then, too. Mm-hmm. Right. And you gave a, at the lunch at DC earlier today, you gave a, another powerful example related to uh, programs for, for parents where there was children that they thought were at risk of child abuse. Could you maybe unpack that example? Sure. This is work by Daphne Busenthal at uh, UC Santa Barbara where... Um, she noticed that there are programs in place to help parents who are at risk for child abuse. And um, the most uh, widespread one uh, assigns a caseworker to uh, these mostly mothers. And they get 20 visits over a year to um, give them parenting advice and act as a support. Uh, but some good evaluations of these programs found they actually weren't helping much, that these parents who got the caseworkers were engaging in as much abuse as those who didn't. So Busenthal took a different approach. She said, well, um, maybe the issue is, and this is based on some research, that these parents have the wrong story about why their kids act out and fuss, why their babies do. There's a strange phenomenon where many of these parents would blame the child. So the child is, is crying um, and they say, oh, this child is mad at me or, or um, you know, they blame the child, oddly, which can lead to abuse. So Busenthal had the insight to assign half of the mothers who got these caseworkers to an intervention where they try to reshape that, that story. So the way it worked is, um, if the child was fussing, as it sometimes was during these visits, the caseworker would ask the, the mother, you know, why do you think your child's fussing? And sure enough, many of them would say, would blame the child and say, no, this, this child is, is, he's out to get me again today. And the caseworker would then try to get them to reframe that and say, well, can you, can you think of any other reason um, that she's crying? And and gently lead the parent into a, a different explanation that didn't blame the child was something that could be fixed and controlled, like um, uh, maybe I haven't changed my child's diaper recently, or maybe I need to burp, burp her more. Um, and, you know, again, when you tell people these interventions, they often seem small and trivial, and you're like, how, how could this little thing have such a big impact? Right. But this one did. I mean, the ones, the parents who got that little story editing intervention were much less likely to abuse their, their kids after a year than the ones who didn't. Right. It's as if they were, in this case, almost editing the story they were projecting into their child's yes. mind and how they thought they were the reasons for their behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so to, to round out some of what we've been talking about so far and just start thinking more about the applications here, the, if stories do play this very powerful role in, in the behavior that we exert, and there's this opportunity for kind of story editing, as you put it, I want to ask first about just kind of individually. So for viewers that are asking themselves now about 
what are the stories I have and what are the things I might be able to do uh, to refine them? Do you have tips or suggestions for how to think about this? Well, you know, most of the examples I've given so far are sort of a third party helping some group uh, change their story. But there are things we can do ourselves. And, and um, you know, my favorite examples of this are some writing exercises that some uh, psychologists have, have tested. Um, the best known are ones uh, James Pennebaker has developed um, called expressive writing, where uh, if something is troubling us, you just take out a piece of paper and, and write about it as openly as possible, uh, typically for 15 minutes a few nights in a row. This is done best not right after something traumatic has happened, but if a little time has passed, so we have a little distance from it. And often what happens is, uh, well, first of all, the studies show this has remarkable benefits that um, it's very hard to do. People often cry and become upset when they're writing about a troubling event. But over time, they, they are in better health, they, have, they go to their jobs more frequently, they, they uh, have a better immune system. Uh, really good studies there. Why? Well, the people that benefit the most are those who often start out with a very jumbled, sort of nonsensical description of something that happened to them. But by the end of the writing exercise, they've told a new story. It, it, it's, it's triggered a meaning-making process where uh, they're able to think of this traumatic event in a new way that often um, allows them to put it behind them. Some very recent research shows this can be particularly beneficial if you take a third-person perspective on what happened to you. So uh, imagine you're a fly on the wall looking at yourself. And that distancing, again, it, it uh, makes us a little more objective. Um, one study, for example, was you know, imagine a time you were very angry at someone, like a boss. and, and um, Taking the third-person perspective, say, oh, you know, I can sort of see there was blame on both sides, and you don't reimmerse yourself in the feelings; you restructure it in a way that often allows you to move on. Right. It's remarkable how much a lot of this seems to resonate with early philosophical thinking and, and Aristotle, and this kind of thought that you don't. The best way to prepare yourself to to behave in the moment is actually with kind of advance self-reflection and habit formation that creates this virtue that in the moment is going to be what your expressed behavior is but the way you sort of dictate your life is by building that that cord or that story for yes and, and, and you know aristotle actually was one of the first to mention another way you we can do something personally which is to change our behavior first and, and it's odd to he talked about habits and how you know if you want to be a better person start acting like a better person and, and right um, that, that um, we're very good observers of ourselves, and, and um, it can lead to oddly, the behavior can trigger the new story. Right. So the second part of the advice given here was: let's say you have, as your audience, people in government. What are the sort of things they should be thinking about in terms of identifying opportunities for these storytelling moments or story editing moments? Well, I'll, I'll turn the tables and possibly embarrass you, but you know, I think what you and your group are doing are, are, is just uh, tremendous to, to um, have you know, all sorts of services with the underlying um, bottom line being to test them experimentally, as we are saying, that, that um, you know, we as psychologists have all sorts of ideas about how in a wide range of policy decisions from ones I've talked about today with your, your colleagues of truancy, of, of getting people to pay their taxes, uh, getting people to save for retirement, um, and you name it, there's, there's 
there's ways we could think to um, help with these story editing interventions, but you have to test them to make sure. You can't just go out and say, let's do this. You, you've got to have those good control groups. And, right. and you're doing great work. And, yeah. Final question, what's on the horizon for you, or what should you what should we be looking out for that's going to be coming down the pipeline down the next three months, six months, year? Well, I'm excited about um, some work that Greg Walton, a, a psychologist at Stanford, has taken the lead in this. But he and I have, have a paper that we um, hope will be published soon that summarizes a lot of this research. And Greg's team is coming up with a website that um, for any one policymakers, psychologists who are interested in what's already been done, they can go and they can search by a particular problem like um, health or education. They can search by um, people or whoever they want to find out what the research is uh, to get them started on doing some of these uh, projects. So I'm excited about that. That's great. Well, Professor Tim Wilson, really appreciate your time today. Thank you. And for everyone who's watching, we'll see you on the next video.